Thank you, guys. If we could just teach a couple people to sing in our church, it would be great. Uh, I want to introduce you. Some of you have gotten to meet him already this morning, and I needed somebody else tall. So we got, got him up there. Jamie's tall, but he hides in the back. So anyway, this is Mike Proud. Mike is the current, and uh, I guess we could still call you new, right? How long does that go? Okay, anyway. Mike is uh, our, our executive director in Denver at the Colorado Baptist General Convention, and he is speaking this evening here for the association meeting, and I texted him when I heard he was coming and said, what are you doing Sunday morning? And I, he said, uh, and he said, nothing. I said, well, you want to come to church? And then he didn't say anything. And finally, I replied again and said, you don't have to preach. And so, anyway, he's going to come share about what's happening in Colorado and introduce himself a little bit. We're glad you're here, man. So, glad you're here. You know, I I was a pastor for 18 years, so uh, Pastor Greg, I promise I'm not going to preach. I'm going to keep it short. Um, But it's been five months now that, well, May 1st will be five months that I've been on the field. Uh, here as your ex- state executive director. I've put 15,000 miles on the car since December 1. So I'm, I'm trying to burn up the road and meet Colorado Baptists and kind of hear how can the convention better serve you because it's all about how can we come alongside our churches and help our churches to accomplish what God is calling them to do. So we're trying to do something new at the convention office. We're trying to decentralize what we do. We're not the experts. We just come alongside and support the pastors and churches. In fact, our mission statement is that the Colorado Baptist General Convention exists to support associations and churches for accelerated gospel impact. And so that's what we're seeking to do. Uh, We've been... As I've been traveling around the state, I've been hearing from pastors, I've been hearing from church leaders, I've been hearing how they desire to be in partnership together, how they desire to be unified again, being partners as opposed to competitors, right? That's important because we're all on the same team. In fact, one of the things that we say at the Colorado Baptist General Convention is that we are all Colorado Baptists because we're all on the same team We're all serving the same Lord. We're all seeking to see people one to Christ and discipled up so that they will share with others that can be one to Christ and discipled up. So, Pastor, thank you for the opportunity just to introduce myself. On behalf of the 380 sister churches in the Colorado Baptist General Convention, thank you for what you do. Thank you for your giving the cooperative program. Thank you for the ministry that you carry out right here in Pueblo. God bless you. And, and he, didn't, he didn't say this, but we did rescue him from California. So uh, we are glad he's here. Um, thank you for, for being a part of our service today. Glad to worship the Lord with you. And uh, we are beginning a new series up behind me. And for a while, you, uh, for a few minutes here, um, you have seen a... a very complicated message title, Grace and Peace. Our, it, we're entering a new sermon series for through the summer months, hopefully, Lord, if, unless the Lord comes back first, and we can always pray for that, right? Um, 
through this book, this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians. And it has a very exciting title. I, I was ca- talking to Zach about it earlier this week. I'm calling it Galatians. I know, getting a little edgy, and we've got to be careful about these things. But um, if by the end of July, your Bible it does not automatically fall open to the book of Galatians, it won't be my fault because that's where we're going to camp out for a while. Uh, this is an, uh, a very formative book to our Christian faith. Um, it's one of the earliest books, and I'll share a little bit about that here in a moment, but it's one of the earliest books that we have in the New Testament, and I've, I've tried to give you guys some information just so you understand how the New Testament is organized. talked about it last week and the week before during our Easter celebration because we, we looked at the end of 1 Corinthians, the the Gospels are not actually the oldest documents that we have in the New Testament. They are actually written after most, if not all, of Paul's letters and a lot of other things as well. What we find is that Paul and, and others, but we see a lot from Paul, he wrote 13 books in the New Testament out of the 27, uh, was writing to the churches in particularly Asia, what they call Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. You'll see a map of that in a moment because I like maps. And uh, we see that they're writing to baby churches about how to be the church, how to be followers of Jesus Christ. As these uh, disciples, as the apostles started passing on into their eternal reward in heaven, they started to realize we need to write these things down about what we've been teaching for the last 20, 30 years, and that's how we get the Gospels. They were generally written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the late 50s into the early 60s A.D., and then the Gospel of John was written probably 90 A.D. It's quite a bit later, quite a bit different as well as how the story is told. And so uh, what we find then after the Gospels and Acts are all of the letters of instruction, first from the Apostle Paul, longest to shortest in churches. So even the, the letters that we have, they're not in chronological order. Romans is not the oldest letter. It is the longest letter. And for those of you who are here five or six years ago, you remember it took a year and a half to get through it. This will not take that long, hopefully. You can call me on that later. It's all right. I don't mind. Um, then you have First, Second Corinthians, and then Galatians uh, falls into the Greeks eat pork chops list, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. How do you remember the order they're in? Because Greeks eat pork chops. It's on page fourteen forty nine of my Bible. You're invited to turn there as well and see what happens on yours. This this is why I don't tell jokes, Mike, really, because they just stare at me. I think I'm hilarious. That's all I need to worry about. Okay, Um, let's go to the book of Galatians. We'll read the first five verses, and then we'll get into more serious matters along the way. Let's stand as we read God's Word together. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory 
forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord, thank you for your glory. And may we, in your word, learn more of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Unless you want to stay standing, that's okay. All right, some of you may need to walk around, and that's okay. So, we start out, the first word of this letter tells us who it's from. You know how we usually write letters, and we might have a letterhead on it, and have the name, and the address, and the dates, things like that. Wouldn't it be nice if we actually had the date here? Problem is, they didn't use the calendar like we did, because they haven't figured out the before Christ, and the Anno Domini, the AD, and the BC, and and all that. Uh, they, but what we find is that Paul, right at the start, shows who he is and where his authority is. And I got a, a, a graphic up there. I don't know how well you can see it because it's going to be pretty small, but you're invited to go back to YouTube later and look at it. I think it's the next one. Yeah, there it is. Um, if you can see that, you have excellent eyes. Way to go. But what we find here is that right in the middle of this timeline, it says AD 49 to 57, it says Paul writes Galatians. There's a, there's a window of time in the early 50s where we believe this letter to be written. We don't think it's, you know, we, when I say we, I mean the people who've done the real research. I'm borrowing off of them. They don't think that this letter was his earliest, but it was one of his earliest. Probably the letters to the Thessalonians were earlier than this and, and maybe a couple others. But most of Paul's writings that we have go from about 45 A.D., up till 60, and it's believed that he was martyred for his faith in the early 60s A.D. Uh, And as I mentioned last week, Paul lost his head. Didn't mean he went crazy. It means literally he lost his head. He was gone. They beheaded him because he would not deny Christ. He was uh, one of the the martyrs under the, the Roman emperors and killed in Rome. And so... In Galatians, what we find is an early writing of his, and really one of the reasons I wanted to revisit it is because it has so many formative things about our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it looks to be, it does not, not technically, but it looks a lot like a rough draft for Romans. And if you've let, read Romans, it uses a lot of the same scripture that Paul cites in Galatians through the old and or from the Old Testament and the prophets, and it and it speaks about the same thing. The theme of Galatians is the righteous will live by faith. And uh, if you if you read the article in the bulletin this morning, you'll know that one of the more famous verses we find in chapter two, and I'll just turn over there really quickly because it's probably one you've heard before. It says, "I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me." And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so when we come to the Word, we see that Paul declares his apostleship from the fact that God sent him. God sent him. What is an apostle? The basic uh, meaning of the Word is one who is sent. Sent by whom? By Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, he, he has this dash, this long dash in the English Standard Version that I'm reading from. kind of turns out as a parenthesis in some other translations, but it's not for a lack of its importance. Because what we know about Paul is that he was, as he says later in Galatians, one who he says was abnormally born. 
one who was different than the rest of the apostles. Why is that? Well, if you'll remember, Jesus had 12 apostles in his ministry, and at the end of his ministry, one of them bailed. Remember his name? Judas. There's a little bit about Judas in the Gospels. I'll invite you to go look that up yourself. But in Acts chapter 1, we see that the the apostles cast lots, and they called a guy named Matthias to replace him. That is the last we hear about Matthias at all. What we do find is that several chapters later, the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, this character named Saul appears. And he first appears as the one who is holding the coats, the young man Saul, holding the coats for those who killed Stephen. They threw rocks at him until he died. It is a totally different variety of being stoned than we have in Colorado. Okay? He was absolutely murdered because he offended the Jews. They saw his declaration of Christ as king to be blasphemous, which, by the way, is the crime for which Jesus was killed. So we need to realize that these words that they spoke of Christ being Lord and Savior were not popular. And they did cost these followers their lives. I've already mentioned how Paul dies many decades later from this time. But he was this called Saul at this moment, and he was a Pharisee. He wanted to live the letter of the law. And so at that moment that they took the life of Stephen, he is the one who held the coats. Um, within a chapter, and we'll come revisit this as we go into chapter 2 because he starts talking about his, his, uh, his own life, he encounters Jesus. How does he encounter Jesus? He encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road. Damascus was about 150 miles from Jerusalem. Paul had heard that some of the Jews that got kicked out of Jerusalem were going there for refuge. So he was chasing down those who trusted Christ as their Savior to kill them. He calls himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, one who persecuted the church of God. One who killed followers of Jesus. But if you've read Acts chapter 9, you'll know that he has a pretty unique encounter at that moment. He meets Jesus, the Lord, and the Lord blinds him to get his attention. Now, I was a teacher for a long time. Even as a preacher, I kind of say every once in a while, I'll say, now look at me. I want to see your eyes. I'm going to push my glasses up even so I can see you clearly. If I ever do this, by the way, don't be afraid. Unless you're hoping I can see you. I can't see you if I do that. Anyway, usually we, if we want somebody's attention, we say, look me in the eyes, right? What did God do to Paul? He blinded him. So he goes into Damascus as the one who's going to persecute the church. He tells him exactly where to go, to the street called Straits, to this guy's house, And a few days later, they baptize him, and the scales fall from his eyes so he can see. There's more about that in the apostle's life of whether or not his vision was fully restored or whether it was that thorn that he talked about that he asked to be released from. That's not really part of this story. But what we do know is that that moment when he encountered Christ, he encountered the risen Savior. And this is the moment he tells us from. He is not called from man nor through man, but he is called 
through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. One who persecuted the Christ, persecuted Christians now has become a leader of them. Now that's kind of mind-boggling. And think about that in, in today's context, and I've used this illustration before, but think about running into someone in a from a different part of the world, perhaps from the Islamic faith or Hindus or anything around the world, a group that persecutes the church. And this individual is a leader of those persecutors. And now he shows up in your church building and says, I believe in Jesus. Would you think you have a little bit of trepidation? Now think about the early church here with the Pharisees who were persecuting the church and the leader of that persecution now will return to them and say, hey, guess what? I'm on your team now. That's Paul. And in Acts chapter 13, we see that he changes the name that he's called from Saul to Paul. And that's all it says. It says, as Luke's writing it down, it says, Saul, who then we called Paul, you're like, wait a second. I've missed something here. And for the rest of the, of the book of Acts, he's called Paul. And that's what we find here. Why does he change that name? So that he can fulfill his mission to proclaim the gospel. He's going to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to proclaim the good news. Now, what we find in Galatians now is a group of believers that comes from both Jewish and Gentile stock. Uh, there, I got another map up there. It is it, of, of Asia Meyer first up there. You can get that one up there. There it is. So uh, you say, Pastor, I can't see that map very well. Well, first of all, hold on. Look at the big green blob to the top right. That's what is, they called Galatia in that time. So can't see that. Let's go to the next one. Maybe that'll be a little better. Maybe there. There we are. Can you see it a little better now? A little bit. It's still kind of small up there. But what we find is Galatia covers a whole lot of what we know as modern-day Turkey. And you have a north part and a south part. Now, um, the question about the, the history of Galatia and who Paul was actually writing to is that there were actually two different parts of Galatia. And I saw a meme this week that rem- of, uh, about my home state that made me kind of think about this. Um, it said, it's, it's not new and it's not Mexico, it's New Mexico, okay? Neither New nor Mexico, it's New Mexico. That's the kind of thing we run into here because in that broad swath that we see that is called Galatia, in the northern part, you have more of an ethnic Galatians, the ethnic Galatians, people who would be like the descendants of what, who they would call Galatians. And then throughout the region, it's actually a political uh, division that is called Galatia. That it's not necessarily ethnically Galatian. Like, I don't look Mexican, but I grew up in New Mexico. Okay? Same kind of deal. So, the question is, and you see those little lines for the maps there, is who is Paul writing to? And why does this matter? Well, that's one of the questions about the date. Do you have an early date for this book or do you have a later date for this book? If it's in the early part, it's probably closer to Israel. And you'll see down at the bottom, you see if you've got really good eyes, you can see it says Antioch and Tarsus, which is where Saul was from. Those, 
the earlier date leans toward it being a more Jewish audience. And if it's a later date, it's probably further to the north and it would have been a more Gentile audience. Now, in chapter 2, we're going to find out why that is a major issue. Because Paul is dealing with these people that are called Judaizers who are telling the, the Galatians, and, and Galatia covers a lot of cities that you hear about, even in, throughout the New Testament, Lyconium, Lystra, Derby. It's close to Laodicea, those kinds of areas. And um, the, so what's happening is that there are Jewish Christians coming in and causing confusion towards what is legitimate New Testament, what we see as New Testament faith in Jesus Christ. So the theme that Paul is carrying throughout this is, is it similar to a, a, a song we would sing today. Uh, it's in Christ alone. Our faith has nothing to do with how well we can follow some kind of rules. It has everything to do with who we trust. And so, uh, that's where Paul's coming from here. And he declares that authority from Jesus Christ. And that's where he always goes back to when the people start accusing him of different things, is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And we could stand to think about that today as we face challenges in our world. Who should we return to when people start accusing us of things? Jesus. We come back to the crucified one, the one who gave a perfect life so that we might have salvation. It's not because we are better than anybody else. It's because he is worthy of glory and gave himself because of his great love for the world and for his creation. So Paul offers his greeting and he says, all the brothers who are with me. And, and at the end of the book, he returns, he has, and, and as is Paul's pattern, he talks about some people who are with him along the way, sends greetings through them along the way there. There are so many important doctrines found in this passage, in this, in this short book. I mean, in my Bible here, I've got it, these nice little no, notes in the margins that I use, but this is one, two, three, four, five, six pages of my Bible. Yet it contains some of the most important things that we will ever learn about our faith in Jesus Christ. It's impeccably Trinitarian. What does that mean? It it declares God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Even as he doesn't mention it here, once we get to chapter 5, many of you will recognize something called the fruit of the Spirit. Well, the fruit of the Spirit only comes if the Spirit's seed has been planted. Who is the Spirit's seed? That is Christ. Christ is our salvation, and now he prepares us for our, his return, for our reunion with him through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Galatians centers around. But he has this greeting at the start. And so when he says to the churches of Galatia, this map is, is important because he's writing to a whole bunch of different believers who are facing similar challenges. And we'll see that throughout what we find in, in the New Testament. We, we see all kinds of places where God at work in us is going to show that we're not that different than the person next to us. We've all got the same problem. And we've all got the same destiny on earth. 
and that is death. We need the grace of God to know what's beyond that. And that's what we come to here in verse 3. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is uh, that, uh, is it a theocrostic? I always get that word mixed up with onomatopoeia. No, that's something else. Um, the acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is something that is given to you when you absolutely do not deserve it. Not when you least deserve it, but something that you don't deserve. And frankly, every one of us could use a little more of that with each other. You know, we, none of us are perfect. We're always going to mess up. We're going to have failings. We're going to insult and, and intentionally or unintentionally. We're going to do things that offend one another. But what do we need in the midst of that? Grace. But why do we need that grace? Because ultimately that grace is the evidence of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because there is no greater offense in this world than sin. And sin is what separates us from Christ. By His grace, we now can join together as the church. He says to the churches of Galatia, and then He says grace to you. We need the grace of God so that we have a proper relationship with one another. Why? Because He has offered that restoration between us and Him. And now, as evidence of that, it's how we live together. We're always going to sin in this flesh. It's, it's just in, endemic of what we are. You know what the real pandemic is, right? real pandemic is that the wages of sin is death. We need grace. Where does it come from? I'm going to get there in a second. I talked about it already. I'll come back to it because that's the way it always works out. It says, and peace. Peace. Peace has been described simply as the absence of conflict. We think about places around our world and Russia and Ukraine. We pray for peace. It could be the absence of conflict. We think of our nation as a peaceful nation. But if you just turn on the news or look at the social media platforms or if you look at whatever news site you look at or open that thing, what's that thing that some of you still use, that big thing? What's that called? Newspaper. That's what it is. You know, I am 44 years old and have never subscribed to a newspaper. I just blew some of your minds. This thing called the Internet happened when I was in college. I never have subscribed to a newspaper. Anyway, I still get news. Don't worry. Sometimes I can ignore it, too. What we find, though, is that that news, a lot of times, we think we have peace just because we live in a peaceful nation. It, it didn't work out that way. Just turn it on. You'll see what's happening in our world. What is real peace? There are nations that, nations can be at peace with each other, which just means they're not fighting, but they're still separated. But God in the church has called us to peace. So what then is peace? Peace is something that is a, a place of reconciliation that only comes because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of the forgiveness that we have on the cross. That is true 
peace. True peace is the presence of Jesus Christ. Because He is the King of kings. And through Him, He has brought res- reconciliation between death from between us between death and the grave. He offers that reconciliation. And it can only come through Him. True healing only comes as a result of Jesus' completed sacrifice and His resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, then it all would have just been a footnote in history. But because of his resurrection, he calls us to restoration together. And Paul goes on to address a lot of these problems in the the letter to the Galatians. We're going to get there later. But the foundation of everything that he's going forward from is here as we read it in verses 1 through 5. He says, he gave himself in verse 4 for our sins. It was a gift. We talked about that in our class this morning. Salvation is never something that can be earned. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a salvation. It would be salary. It would be something that you have worked for. That is a payment. Salvation is rescue. We are sinners. We need a Savior. And so the salvation is a gift from God. He gives Himself for our sins for a purpose to deliver us from the present evil age. That is the age that we live in on earth right now. We need salvation. We need uh, redemption for all of the evil that we see in the world. People who say this is an outdated book, frankly, have not read it. Just go read some of the Old Testament. Uh, re- go, go read First and Second Kings. And then go read about the British monarchy. And see, there's, there's some similarities. How we relate to one another, never, no matter what the technology is that we can turn on and off the heat, that we have bright lights shining in my face, that my glasses are smeared right now and I can't see you anyway. But when we get to all these places, we wonder, what has God done? What is He going to do? He has offered us salvation because no matter our technology or no matter what kind of knowledge we have, we still have the same problem. And that's that we die. The question is, why do we die? We die because we are sinners. The salvation we are given is through the one who gave his own life and by his resurrection provides us deliverance from this evil age. Resurrection power is what this book is all about. Why is it offered? Because God said it was that way. We need to understand that our God is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the one that we serve and that we follow. And it says here, it's His will that the Son gave His life for our sins. Verse 5, it says, or verse 4, end of verse 4, according to the will of God our Father. We just read that line. We go, what is according to the will of God our Father? He gave Himself for our sins. That is our rescue. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. We need a Savior. God gave Himself for our sins. What is the ultimate result of that? The glory of God. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The question is, when that gift is offered to you, what do you do with it? There is a moment 
where we need to place our trust in Christ. And that moment proves a stepping stone to our faith for the remainder of our lives. Because once we trust Christ as our Savior, He calls us to be His disciples, which means His followers. And if you're following somebody, you need to trust where they're going. I remember moving my brother to seminary almost 30 years ago, 26 years ago. I don't know. I I had hair then. That's all I remember. Um, I was about 19 years old, and and we were moving my brother from Las Cruces, New Mexico, to Fort Worth for seminary, and and I got stuck driving his 1977 Ford Courier. Anybody remember one of those? Tiny little pickup, big old Greg. I was a lot skinnier then, but I had to get in that thing. It was beautiful, too. It was orange. Oh. It was lovely. No, it was not a lovely vehicle. And as a matter of fact, as we talk about technology changing, the vehicle itself had an 8-track. Anybody remember that? So we had an adapter go into the 8-track that was a cassette adapter. Well, if you remember the 90s, that's when these things called CDs became popular. And it had an adapter going to the tape, going to the 8-track player. And the Bible, this is not about the message at all. This is just entertaining. There was, I I played my favorite music, which probably none of, well, maybe five of you in here would enjoy. And it had this wonderful underlying hum to it because it had been adapted too many times. So you had this below whatever I was blasting over the top of it. Anyway, as we were driving across West Texas to Fort Worth, my brother was towing a U-Haul trailer that had a, a reflective little U-Haul sticker on it. Middle of the night, I was so tired. All I was doing was watching for that little reflector. Because I knew if I kept up with him, wherever he was going, I was going to end up where he was going. Now, we ended up at a friend's house in the middle of the night, very tired, ended up sleeping until like noon the next day because we got there like four in the morning. But if I had lost track of that. I didn't have one of these things. You're, you know, there, kids, there was a day when these didn't happen. I didn't know where I was going. I did have a map, but it was dark, and it was Texas. Texas can be scary in the dark. Texas can be scary. Okay, anyway, um, when, here's the thing is that I kept my eye on that little reflector because it, it, wherever that was going, I was going. And now here, what God is calling us to do is to keep our eye on the cross. Because he's called us to, to as it says in Philippians, to, to live for him. Because to live is Christ. To die is gain. The question is, are we willing to lay down our lives? What we find in the New Testament is a witness of people who saw the resurrection power of Christ and followed it to their death and received their reward because of their trust in Jesus Christ. The theme, and I read verse 20 of chapter 2, the theme of the gospel in Galatians is to lay down our lives as Christ did for the church, we lay it down for him. I don't know about you, that's, that's a challenge. 
Sounds painful. But it's the only way we see the glory of God. Because to live is Christ. To die is gain. Two questions. First of all, do you know Jesus? And maybe I should have asked this question first. Are you willing to follow him like that? Because that's what we're called to. The place of ultimate trust where we place our entire desires, our entire passion on the glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you know him? Will you follow him? When you follow somebody, you better trust where they're going, where they are. Our God ascended and now sits at the right hand and waits for the day that the trumpet blows we are reunited for him, with him for eternity. Will you be there? We have a time of invitation at the close of every service, and this is the time where you get to respond in obedience to him. And it may be that you need Christ. You need, you, you're convicted by this words of this baffling gospel, but that one that God has called us to, radical obedience. Maybe you need to take a step of obedience to, to walk together with him in our church family talk to you about that. Maybe you need to take that step of obedience and baptism where you identify with him in his burial and his resurrection. That's what this moment's all about, is are you willing to take that step to follow him? Because he, in perfect obedience to the Father, gave his life for your salvation. Let's pray. God, you are good. <clears throat> I pray, Lord, that today we... Um, we're reminded of the great sacrifice that was made for the sin of the world. I thank you for Jesus. And I pray that you redeem our lives in this moment that we might bring glory to you. There is no perfect person in here. You've called us to, to perfect obedience, though, to trust you for our salvation. God, help us have the courage to follow you in whatever that means. To bring you glory in everything that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together and the altar is open as we sing. You can respond. God's call on your life.